0: And welcome back to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, then you will have noticed that there was no second episode last month. I'm sorry if you missed it, but if you follow the social media or subscribe to the podcast newsletter, then you will know that the short break was used to collect a lot of lecture recordings for future releases. In the couple of weeks... Myself and Tracy, who acts as researcher on the podcast, have had the opportunity to attend two big folklore conferences, with a third coming up shortly. As writers and researchers in folklore and history, these conferences are invaluable to learn about the latest findings in our areas of interest, meet other people working on the same topics, and discuss our own work. Experts from all over the country and beyond come together to talk and share their research. Of course, it's not possible for many people to attend these events. Often they are too far away. They might also be very expensive or just not easy to get to. And so, these papers and presentations usually only reach a small audience of like-minded researchers who may use elements in their own work. It is a shame that such great work does not reach further, especially when the credentials of the presenters are often so strong. And that is where the Folklore Podcast comes in. I've approached all of the speakers at the conferences that we have attended and sought permission for their presentations to be recorded and placed into episodes of the podcast, so that all of the listeners can benefit from their knowledge. Of course, it is not always possible. Some research may be sensitive. Some funders will not allow general publication in this way but I am glad to say that the majority of the experts that I approached have been happy to allow their talks to be recorded and shared. Many have given permission for transcripts to be made, and these will go out to podcast patrons on the Patreon page in the usual way. I have also been able to film some speakers, and I will seek permission to put these films onto the YouTube channel in due course. The two conferences which have been recorded so far are Hidden Charms 2, a conference on apotropaic protection, charms, and similar magical themes, and the Folklore Society's major conference for 2018, which is on folklore associated with working life, rural pursuits and the like. There is a real diverse range of presentations in the podcast archive from these two, and I will draw on them over the coming months, with some of my own episodes in between but I want to take the opportunity to be able to bring this body of work to you from a number of expert researchers. I hope that you will find it useful. The first of these presentations is from the Hidden Charms Conference and examines the subject of witch bottles. The practice of burying or concealing bottles on your property as a form of magical protection against witches, or similar, appears to have started in the 17th century. The bottles would contain any number of ingredients, such as hair, pins or urine, which constituted the charm through which the magic was worked. Using the collection in the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Cornwall, Dr Peter Hewitt, one of the museum managers, argues that the uses of the witch bottle may have been more diverse than first thought and that folklore has a part to play in helping us to decode this object in modern times. The presentation stands up well in audio form, but Dr Hewitt has kindly made his PowerPoint presentation available for listeners to use if they wish to see the slides referenced. Visit the podcast website and you'll find a link in the notes for this episode, as well as one to Peter's full biography. Here is the presentation, Witch Bottles findings from the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic.
1: Great pleasure to be here today. Um, the takeover of Hidden Charms 2 by the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic continues. Uh, it's been mentioned three times already. Um, I'm going to talk about the witch bottle collection at the museum. Um, we've got at least 11, um, and we have, I think, a lot more. Um, a lot of archival material was turned up. Uh, where the founder, Cecil Williamson, writes about um, bottles that he used to display in the museum. Um, we don't know where they are now. Um, so I'm going to sort of, you'll see occasionally these little cards with sort of type-written text on, and that's his interpretation card, so if you see those, that's what's going on. on, you'll see we go through. Um, I just want to begin by sort of recapping, if possible, the sort of basics uh, of which bottle um, culture, right? Um, they largely physical examples largely date from the 17th century onwards and as I'm sure you're all aware is this only this bellomine type in that period um, have a tribe of four ingredients in salt and urine um, hair often crops up as well um, and they're a countermagical device so they are um, the purpose of them is to break the power of the witch over um, their victim and um, we know this because there's two great uh, 17th-century sources that sort of detail, um, give a lot of detail about how these were used. I'm not going to go into all this because uh, I'm talking about later examples. Um, generally speaking, I think we can say that they're the products of sort of magical specialists or professionals in the field, so cunning folk, cunning person, wise women, um, or some sort of astrological physical specialist because um, it's sort of bound up into the sort of semi-scientific worldview of the period. Um, I think this is important, <laughs> although it is debated, um, the witch bottom was broadly coherent with contemporary scientific assumptions, if we can talk about science in this period. The 17th century is a mashup of lots of different and interesting and often contradictory ideas. I think it's a fabulous period. Um, but is it folk magic? Is it science? Is it medicine? These are all up for debate. But when we look at the, the, the examples from later periods, I think it's all contestably folk magic. It has a different rationale, or a non-rationale, depending on what to talk about. I want to talk about which bottles from about 1850 to 1950 that, that are in our collection. That date range broadly represents the kind of strength of the collection that we have, and that was collected by Cecil Williamson, um, the, the object state from that the objects date from roughly that period, but also slightly later. I'd also like to suggest new interpretations and definitions of witch bottles for this period. And I want to really immerse you, the audience, in ideas and examples collected by Cecil Williamson and convince you that he's a really, really important figure in 20th century folklore collecting magic, etc. So, uh, what is a witch bottle? Um, Well, this is Cecil Williamson's definition of it. And I just want to sort of... um, point you towards that first phrase To capture and enclose a spirit essence um, together with part of one's fictive so you know, just think about that a little bit and also ways in which they're used uh, casting them in rivers hiding them, heating them up putting them in ponds, lakes, wells throwing them in the sea uh, burning them, boiling them, smashing them or just leaving them to stand in the road for other people to take away So there's a nice broad overview. He actually started collecting witch bottles in the 1940s, if not before. So he's quite ahead of the curve, really, in terms of this material culture. Um, Just briefly, this is my definition really. In the 19th and 20th century, witch bottles are the product of a fluid, results-based economy of magic. So if it doesn't work, then the cunning person that you're consulting is going to lose their reputation quite quickly. um, it's a transactional economy um, and production of use of witch bottles is individualistic I think this is really important and it draws upon private, symbolic and magical ideas um, but we can access these things using kind of folkloric research what something might mean in one region or another region. And we can kind of hopefully make sense. I'm going to try and make sense of this stuff. And um, going on from Cecil's idea, a witch bottle contains some form of spirit essence, captured, conjured, or coerced into a bottle. It interacts with the contents of that bottle in a magical, symbolic way, which is imagined... By the community in which it's used and by the person the maker of the bottle. And location is vitally important to determine what that bottle's function was, what's its meaning. Okay, so let's move on to some got some general themes that I want to look at. This source, I I think, is one of the most important sources to understanding which bottles in the modern period. I've got it from the Wells Journal. has been discussed sort of a little bit by Owen Davies. Um, but I'm going to talk about an element of it that he hasn't really talked about. Um, in Stockport, or a place called Edgeley, just outside of Stockport, two glass bottles with pins, urine, and dragons blood, kind of plant resin, were discovered in a roadway. Um, this is a brilliant source because there was a journalist there and um, a kind of crowd gathered around these, uh, this sort of excavation of these bottles, and everyone started talking about what they thought these bottles meant. And this journalist was on the spot and he started writing these ideas down. Um, so there's, there's one thing which um, he observed initially, which is that several of the crowd thought that these were love charms. So made by fortune tellers to sort of keep your man in line, sort of thing. And then the other witnesses came forward and claimed that bottles, witch bottles, pins, um, urine, etc., were devices made by witches. They were were a kind of witchcraft. And they had a malefic intent. Um, And they also said if you found one of these, then you should ultimately, the first thing you should do is go to a wise woman to to sort the problem out. So this journalist sought out a professional in the field uh, a professional board fortune teller and planet ruler was the way we described her, and she said, "Absolutely must dispose of the bottle in in, in the proper way." So, what is the proper way to dispose of the witch bottle? Well, um, you can't just break it. If you break it, all sorts of bad stuff will happen. The land will be poisoned. The vegetation will die. Um, and that's particularly if you throw it into a cesspool. you' have know, been very clear about this. Don't throw it in a cesspool or a rubbish pit. You just don't do it. The only way to do it is to break the fire over a ruined stream whereby uh, a pernicious fluid would mingle with the pure current and be imperceptibly, but irrevocably, wasted. The bottle being also cast into the river. Okay. Then there's another story about which bottle in the we'll go back to this in a bit, but the informant's sister was once bewitched by a witch bottle. Okay, So this isn't a counter-magical charm. It's a means of affecting a curse on somebody. They knew that the offending bottle was buried in the bed of the river Mersey underneath the Wellington Bridge Arch. And this caused all kinds of problems, but we'll come back to that one. I just want to consider a kind of bottle that would be buried in a kind of water-based environment. Now, this one, um, in the museum collection, um, is a, as you can see, a kind of torpedo shape, roughly sort of mid-19th century, uh, early 20th century, probably deposited in that period, might have been a bit later, we're not exactly sure. Um, Inside this, um, this top actually just came off recently. Uh, it wiggleed itself free I I didn't do anything to it, honestly (laughs) Uh, and it came off and this is really bad photo, but you can't really see it but inside of there is a mass of kind of weeping willow leaves Uh, one bent pin and there might be more pins in there definitely can see one bent pin, you can't see it in there but trust me and there was a mat of twisted hair, black hair in there this sort of uh, that thing falling down there that's the hair that's kind of going back into the mud in the base end of the bottle. Anyway, that's what it is. This is the Interpretation Guard recently found um, regarding this bottle. And it was discovered in, uh, in the dried sludge in the old, disused cesspit at the manor house <coughs> in the which is presumably normal. Um, ill-wishing magic is indicated by various aspects of the bottle's uh, shape and content, as well as the spot chosen for its deposit. So this is really interesting, because Cecil Williamson is kind of in I mean, I don't think <coughs> you read that Stockport source. That Stockport source is really interesting, because it's suggesting this ill-wishing nature of witchcraft, which is quite a new, is it relatively new idea, I think, probably, <coughs> Brian will correct me anyway. <coughs> um, it also has um, this sort of mark on it, which is quite interesting with regard to which bottles generally are thought to have a kind of animus about them if they have a bearded face on, some sort of uh, anthropomorphic element to them. And this has a kind of mermaid on it, which again, links a watery aspect. Another bottle, um, this one, um, more or less the same date period, contains chicken feathers bound up in red wax. Um... And this was deposited in the south flowing water in the River Trescillian in Cornwall. Um, charm against being a witch. This is a general card about this. Um, putting lots of bits and bobs in a jar, casting the water type jar into a south flowing stream to be carried away. So evil, evil energies are put in a jar, thrown in a south flowing river to take this. Lollific energy away from you. So, um, so far, I've kind of analysis these sort of two sources bouncing off each other. If breaking a witch bottle into pure flowing water diffuses the bottle, um, and that's a form of sort of beneficent ritual disposal that a cunning person would do for you. Um, Maybe if we're finding bottles in an archaeological context which is stagnant, standing water. Maybe that suggests a diff- different use of um, the bottle, a different intention behind it. Um, we've said, it carries influences away, south flow water. Interesting to think about whether this bottle has been diffused in any way, whether its contents are forms sort of contagion magic, is this kind of a pestilence from a chicken feather that's been put in water in order to take away that evil influence, not quite sure. But we know from this, <laughs> that river locations are, are really sort of magically efficacious. This was brought home to me, actually quite recently. Um, I did a talk in Podmin, and afterwards this chap came up to me and said, I, I knew a, a charmer in Blislam, Um, and he could cure ringworm, but he could only do it um, in a nine-mile stretch in between the river cow and um, the river Delanque, the Delanque River, which is sort of a tributary of the thing. It's a nine mile stretch of land and he couldn't charm anywhere else. He could only do it in that, that boundary between two rivers. Um, so he gets this idea of the importance of, of, of rivers and their sort of energy flow through the land in the southwest. And places for spirit contact and deposition, putting the bottom into the spirit world. Quite an interesting idea. Let's go back to this Stockport source to sort of re-emphasise that a little bit. So, as you remember, this poor woman was bewitched by a witch bottle, and the, the witch deposited the bottle in the river Mersey. She went to a wise woman. The bewitched woman was called upon to stand in a particular spot at a given time while an incantation was pronounced. Several spirits passed before her, one of which remained in front of her for some time. To so this Spirit, the planet ruler, the wise woman, addressed herself, and soon disappeared, together with the young woman's ailments and forebodings. Just a a wonderful evocation of what's going on with witch bottles in sort of water-bound locations. And it just makes me think, well, what's in this bottle? What's the kind of social relationship going on here, you know? Um, Someone believes that they are bewitched by a bottle that's in the River Mersey. What is the sort of process of this curse being enacted upon? Surely an element of this is that the person trying to curse the individual says, look at this bottle, I've got a e- part of your essence in here, and I'm going to sort of doubly imprison it in a bottle and then in the bottom of a river. You can imagine the kind of psychological trauma that would cause to somebody. And I think, you know, this is you know, reinforced time and time again, sort of cultural histories of witchcraft, that, that this this... Fear of witchcraft is so intense in the modern period, and this doesn't always surface in the sources. But I think it sort of comes out here. So, if a witch, according to this source, can seal the spirit essence of a victim in a bottle, then of course there must be some kind of reciprocal thing going on. Now, spirit of traps are something that Brian's kind of alluded to in your work. Um, I think, you know, it's a theory that's really, really important. Um, this is probably... Are you familiar with this one? Yeah. Um, brilliant thing. Uh, it's in the Pitt Rivers. Witch in a bottle. Um, from Sussex. Collected in 1915. It's donated to the Pitt Rivers Museum by... Margaret Murray. So, you know. That might be a black mark against it for some of you, I don't know. Um, but, anyway. <laughs> they do say there'll be a witch in the bottle. And if you let them out, there'll be a peck of trouble. This is the story collected in this bottle. So, is this this idea of a witch in the bottle... We come from, like, you know, the 16th, 17th century, where witch bottles are these kind of magical counter-devices. To the beginning of the 20th century, where witches are in bottles all of a sudden. Well, what's going on? Well, this is a bottle in the museum's collection that... Um, we didn't know anything about, and I, I opened it up, because I was just interested, with, with the uh, permission of the director of the museum on my app, and it contains some interesting stuff. Six snail shells, lots of desiccated matter, uh, a beetle or a flywheel, droppings, two um, lower arm bits from a really large beetle, which is that which I've identified as a cockchafer beetle, which is huge. I've got a picture of one in a minute. Um, and a small segmented leg of, 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 of some other kind of beetle. This is the only information we've got for this. It's a small interpretation card written by Cecil Williamson. Um, cards like this are usually records of conversations that he's had with people. Um, ginger beer bottle with a ball stock Spirit prison, buried upside down, black beetle entombed. Um, this is probably, he was probably given this by someone out in West Country somewhere, and he thought, oh great, another bottle, whatever. And then just wrote this down, with an accompanying, accompanying story with it. So, <laughs> there is a kind of an end point to this, so don't worry. Beetles in bottles, this is actually a quite traditional, I mean, if you're just looking at contents, um, snails, beetles, it's actually known as a for hooping cough in Ireland. But I think there's something more to this. We know, of course, that witches were known or believed to have um, taken form of animals and insects. There's quite a lot of witch bottles out there in the archaeological record that have insects in them. Um, some particular insects are perceived to be agents of evil and familiars of the witch. And just by happenstance, the cockchafer beetle has a slang kitty witch or billy witch um, uh, focal attached to it. Now, I think this, this is an interesting line of inquiry. I don't, have all the, I don't have answers here, I'm just sort of putting things out. If you think about it, after 1736, when witchcraft no longer becomes a prosecutable offence in this country, um, in fact the people who are um, always scratching witches as recourse against witchcraft are, are find themselves in the dock, um, there has to be a change of practice somewhere along the line. So you have in Devon toad fairs, where cunning men would take toads and rip them apart and give them out as charms. We've also got another ritual called lifting the witch. Has anyone heard of that one? Where you put toad, which symbolizes the witch, on a kind of seesaw, and you smack the seesaw, and the toad is flung out of the parish or out of the boundary of a particular community. And it's this kind of like ridding yourself of a witch, right? So there's this idea in a kind of folk consciousness that um, rather than harming the body of a perceived mal- practice of Malthusian you have to kind of do it by proxy so this is maybe where things like this cock beetle, which is massive for example, UK roving beetle, may come in a kind of coping strategy you know, persecuting something that you can get away with persecuting I just want to throw this one in because it mentions another uh, beetle in here we don't have this bottle anymore. I don't think. Haven't discovered it yet. But it was taken from a crossroads, and the wise woman who put it there. So this is probably some sort of apotropaic charm, charm against witchcraft, possibly. Um, had black chicken's heart, blood, three black devils, coachman's beetles, black horse hair, lamb's wool, material, blah blah blah. So it's just interesting thing. I mean, these. Rather than pins, maybe beetles have a different role to play in witch bottles. Now this beetle is a roving beetle which is carnivorous, and what it does, the folklore behind it is known as a sin or a coffin cutter, which means it goes to people who are particularly sinful in their coffins and eats them. It also has a folklore of cursing, because it lifts up the tail like this and spits a kind of disgusting, acidic substance at you, and it makes... In the past, people thought that this was some sort of um, agent of the witch, or agent of the devil. It's also got a lot of devil lore associated with it. If you've made a pact with the devil, you, you'll automatically find one of these beetles in the palm of your hand, and you know you've got the kind of mark of it. Sort of. So this is all from sort of English countryside law. So the idea really is that bottles become prisons and traps for witches' spirit familiar, animal insect forms, but they can also as doubles Uh, as human protective charms. There's really important sort of slippage and usage here. And this is a bottle in the the collection uh, The Protection of Cider Orchards um, in the Ottery St. Mary era of Devon. And the principle really is that there's a beneficent spirit of cider in there corked up with these sort of um, wasp gall uh, apples on the top there. Almost certainly that there's 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 a wasp in there too. So a kind of protective charm, killing off the wasp that's going to eat your blossoms and stuff. It's going to be in there. Uh, but Cecil's in, interpreted of this is this: it's a protective charm that can burst forth if ever your orchid is in trouble. Um, just widening it out to, to other things in the collection: spirit bottles, the idea that everybody has unwanted spirits hanging around the place, and that you can house them in jars like this. Very interesting idea. And this kind of segues into more sort of medical healing and protection, the use of jars in this sense. I just (coughs) want to mention this one because it's got, uh, obviously, a mouse in there packed with salt. And this idea of a protective charm, which also doubles as a medical thing. So in folk medicine, it's well-known, well-known use um, to put salt in with particularly insects, but also sort of little mammals, to render the fat down. You leave the jar in the sun, and then you can use that fat in various unguents and, uh, and ointments later on, usually for sort of beneficent healing purposes. But it also doubles as this kind of sacrificial thing, too. The suffering of a mouse as a warning against other mice for an infestation in the building. Bottles and healing... This is an interesting one because West Country, there's this whole folklore of stroking and striking an afflicted part of the body. have got lots of different examples in the museum leather strokers, uh, uh, lead brass, uh, a leaden breast, which is from Wells, which was used to uh, encourage breastfeeding and the flow of milk, and stroking stones. But Williamson also writes that he has found charm-filled bottles that were used to rub people's bad backs as a kind of stroking magic. And he also says that these were house charms consisting of bottles placed under ridge roof tiles, which also contained coins. Now these are lots of ideas out here, I'm just sort of throwing them back you. There's a well-known tradition also in almost sort of every part of the UK of hack pennies, healing coins, have a special coin, usually that's harnessing the power of the moon. It has a sort of picture of a, um, a goddess on it, Providentia sometimes. Like these coins here. Uh, these coins were used by a charmer called Charlie Wallace near Carlisle. He would drop them in water. And the light of the moon's rays, he would charm the water and then use these, uh, the water in various charms. So is, you know, is that why coins are in bottles? and Is that why they are used in protection? Charms because they have a healing quality that can also transfer to the protective uh, protection of the building. This might be one example of that happening. This is my last object. Is right? um, this is a melted bottle recovered from pub in Mormonstone, which is on the sort of border, Mormon border. Um, and you can see there. It's got a sort of a semi-melted brass coin and a, and a semi-bent melted pin. Now this was taken out of a thatch fire that happened in 1960. Yes, there's newspaper reports about it. And it just, it just sort of got my imagination going about this idea of, this sort of West Country idea that bottles contain spirit essences. And... This could be a straightforward healing bottle. It could have been used to sort of rub on some of the back, and then if you see a beneficent thing, you then put in the in the uh, in the thatch. It could also be maybe some sort of spirit container. And it's an interesting piece of folklore that comes with it um, that when the fire was happening, um, people reportedly saw uh, figures dancing in the flames. That this sort of spirit had been loosed from this bottle, and there was lots of interest in this bottle. And sort of recovered, which is quite interesting. Um, so so there's a lot of ideas there and sorry if it's a bit confused but I think based on the evidence from this later period I think there's enough to suggest that witch bottles can be broadened out maybe we've seen the malefic use of them um, when you, this always happens when you, when you study and Shells said this earlier when you study material culture it leads you in a new directions like, you know, it's very easy to get sort of stuck in the Black Grave, Joseph Glanville, 17th century sources of what a witch bottle is. And they're very, very helpful, I'm not knocking it at all. But the material culture does take you in new directions. Um, much more to be done on this collection. I mean, you know, I just chanced to open one of these bottles, and, and, and it'd be great if we could scan more of them. But I think... My research has also suggested that much more active archaeology is needed in this area. Now, in Cornwall, of course, you find a lot of bottles buried under wayside crosses at crossroads. So it would be fantastic to have some sort of archaeological project where we actually sort of dig dig up these areas to try and find more things. Riverbank archaeology is riverbanks and riverbeds too. could be really, really interesting. Um, In terms of interpretations, There's there's a definite gap here, I think, in terms of what folklore can do for us. We talked about Beetle the Bottle being an Irish child, but maybe in England it's completely different. So it'd be great to have some sort of folklore index which we can apply to archaeological finds. Something of the type has been suggested by Gavin Schwartz a long time ago. It'd be great to sort of get that up and going. Yeah, sure. Nearly there. And again, I hope that this sort of talk. Um, throwing all these examples at you just sort of made you realise um, how significant the museum's collection is particularly the archival material which we're digging up all the time we've got something like 10,000 documents relating to southwest West charming and witchcraft and so that's it the whistle-stop tour of witch bottles I didn't even get time to talk about fart bottles <laughs> so, sorry about that but
0: we'll maybe next time Okay. thank you very much My thanks go to Dr Peter Hewitt for granting permission for his presentation to be recorded and to Brian Hoggard, John Billingsley and Jeremy Hart, the organisers of the conference, for inviting us along to record. Although it would not be ethical for the transcripts of these talks to be put on sale on the podcast website, the speakers that we have recorded have granted permission in most cases for transcripts to be gifted to Patreon supporters. If you wish to access a transcript of this episode, please visit the Folklore Podcast Patreon page, and if you are not already a supporter, then sign up for a small monthly donation. One dollar a month is enough to get access to all of the episode transcripts, and goes a long way to ensure that we can produce more of this content in the future. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The folklore podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com/marknormanfolklore, or on Twitter with the handle at Mr. Underscore Mark Underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdybird. Bird. Thanks for listening.